This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with your hosts, Leo and Fabiola. We will be discussing why we find ourselves resisting the narratives of the Common Collective, as well as why the Common Collective resists new information. Fabiola. Hey, Leo. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm excited. Well, why are you excited? What are we going to be talking about? We're going to go there tonight. We're going to talk about the vaccines for COVID-19. I'm getting chest pains already. (laughs) (laughs) Very controversial topic, is it? Well, I mean, it can be, right? I mean, people either are like, you can have one opinion about it, and that's it. Or people are kind of like, hey, you know, let's let's discuss it. Let's get everything out on the table, and let's see how we feel about it. And I think we are in that camp, right? Yes. I mean, we did a lot of research for you all <laughs> so that we were on point. And we do have a lot of information to get through. We do. Okay, so let's dive right in because we don't want to make this too long because we do have some clips that are going to come in and a couple of those are decent size. Um, so where do you want to lead off tonight? Uh, and, oh, by the way, when we talk about vaccine, we're talking about the COVID vaccines. We're not going to make this a large conversation about vaccina- vaccine, <laughs> vaccination and immunology altogether. We might do that in another episode, but this is specifically around the COVID vaccines. And I think we're focusing right on Pfizer and Moderna specifically, since those are the ones in the United States that, that are being uh, provided right now? Yes, we're going to talk about that, but you also want to uh, wish everybody a Oh, Happy, happy New Year! It's yeah. our first episode of 2021. And I'm really glad we're doing this because, you know, nothing exciting has happened in 2021 thus far. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I feel like it's like we're in a a movie. Yeah. That never ends. It never ends. <laughs> there are new uh, twists and turns every day. So yes. kind of exciting. And, I, and I'm glad that we're uh, not anywhere near where the action is going down at the moment. We're actually sitting on a, uh, a deck uh, up at the top of a mountain looking out on... Uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Atlantic Forest. Yes. We are in the forest, actually. We are. We are. And it is a, uh, a muggy evening. It is to say muggy. The least. And buggy. And buggy. And, and there's no breeze. No breeze. It's hot. Summer down here. All right. Well, kick us off. Yeah. So we have, ta- we have had four episodes this far, and we talked about several things. So make sure you check out those four episodes. We had our first episode about who we are. We had an episode about... COVID testing, we had an episode about um, what could be getting people sick, what are other alternatives. We also had an episode about terrain theory, which we'll touch up a little bit today. But we really um, are feeling like this vaccine operation is moving quite quickly, actually, a lot quicker than I expected. I'm in healthcare IT, and we work around 
medical data, you know, patient data, all that kind of stuff. And the pandemic has shook the world, of course. The pandemic. Pandemic. <laughs> I do like how you said it. We're going to keep <laughs> pandemic instead of the other words that sometimes we, we use for describing what's happening in the world right now. But the first thing I want to say about um the what we're going to cover is we're going to focus on the vaccines that are currently being used in the US, the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine. And there are a lot of vaccines being developed right now. Um, some have been approved in different countries, approved for emergency use. And, and that's a good thing to note. That is different. So like when, let's use the FDA, for example, mm-hmm. when they give their gold seal stamp of approval on a vaccine, typically that is a much different certification than what's happening right now. This is essentially uh, saying, hey, we want to get this out into the marketplace to, you know, try to stave off this uh, uh, crisis. And so it is being brought to the market for emergency use. But that does not mean that it has the gold seal of approval from the FDA. It just means it's approved for emergency use, which is a different thing. It actually means that it is um, experimental in nature. And so when you agree to participate in that, you are agreeing to participate in an experiment because we haven't done the full safety studies on that yet. And you're, you're part of that. Yes. The population's part of that. So we want to say when uh, the FDA approved for emergency use, all that means is that they glanced over and due to the circumstances said, let's go ahead and move forward with that. But these vaccines have been developed under the 2005 PrEPT Act. The PrEP, PrEP Act? Yes. And I'll tell you what that means. It's really important. That means that the manufacturers in the United States have no liability for any adverse effects. And actually, nobody really has any liability according to the, this um, 2005 PrEP Act, and I will just read to you what that means. So the PrEP Act enacted in 2005 authorizes the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, to issue a declaration to provide liability immunity to certain individuals and entities, covered persons against any claim of loss, caused by, arising out of, relating to, or resulting from the manufacture, distribution, administration, or use of certain medical countermeasures. I I want to just chime in something that that, uh, dawned on me, because you said uh, it provides them immunity. Uh, you know, from liability and, and uh, just to get in a little dig there, you know, that's about the only immunity that's happening with these vaccines. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we will talk about that, too. So something to consider, first of all, uh, first vaccine ever to be developed in 
what, eight months? Yeah, eight, nine months, yeah. Eight, nine months. And the second fastest vaccine that was developed in a short period of time. It was mumps, wasn't it? Yes. And that, from what we researched, took about four years. The other thing to consider is that this is a brand new technology. When we talk about the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, so they're using brand new technology that we're going to go more in depth. Are we doing that later? Yes. Because I got a lot of opinions about that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to try not to do too many opinions. We're going to just try to stick with the facts. But what I mean opinions, I mean, uh, I just think it is important. I I have a lot of conversations with people and, and... you know, and I say things like, so, you know, what's your impression from what you know, your limited knowledge, you know, you're not in immunology, um, you're not a doctor, how do you feel a vaccine works, you know, and then most people will give you some derivative of, you know, oh, you know, they're injecting some really weak or dead version of whatever uh, uh, they're trying to protect you against. And, you know, it's just enough to let the, um, uh, immune system know it's present. It can go in there, scan it, attack it, develop a uh, uh, the ability to defend against it later on if it be- if it comes in contact with it, and then you have that immunity. And so, uh, I think most people would agree with something in that wheelhouse. And uh, uh, this vaccine. really it it operates and the way that it uh, uh, interacts with your system is completely different. It, it, this uh, technology is not in any vaccines that you have ever gotten uh, as part of the schedule that is in play. And I think that's just important to note. And like you said, we'll go into that in a little bit. Yes. We'll explain how it works in just a minute. The other thing, so one of, we already said, is experimental. So just keep that in mind. And the reason for us calling experimental is that we just, we only have about two months worth of data based on the clinical trials that were conducted. So there's just really not enough data. There's no, obviously, long-term studies. So we don't know, you know, in a year, in five years, in 10 years, how is that going to impact? the human body. Well, I think it's also important to note when you say that, um, you know, they can't guarantee any immunity longer than that two months because it hasn't been studied. They don't know if if whatever um, uh, aversion that you grow toward the disease uh, or ability to defend against it, if it goes anything beyond because no one has had that technology within their body and developing that immunity. So they can't say that it lasts for anything longer than two months. And for all they know, it, it wears off in two and a half or three months and you have to get another one. And so, so again, it's because we don't have that data. We haven't done that research. Yeah, let's just say immunity was not a... Um clinical trial criteria, actually. And when you say criteria, what, what do you vaccines. mean? So when they were testing them, they were not looking for immunity at all. They were actually looking for uh, lessening symptomology. That was kind of the goal Well, and, when they were doing the trials. That's what we were talking about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. When we were talking about like efficacy. Yes. And, and, and uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that too. Yes. Okay. I don't want to get yeah. ahead. I don't want to get ahead. I'm yes. excited. Can you tell? <laughs> You're very excited. <laughs> um, so another thing to note, okay, so COVID-19, the symptoms keep broadening. 
right? So you could have people with no symptoms to that apparently are positive. And you could have people with very severe symptoms, all kinds of different symptoms. So it's really hard to develop anything, be a test kit, be a vaccine, when you really don't have a control group to, to test against. So we spoke about that in maybe episode two. Episode two is that what we talked about? Yeah, it was all about RT-PCR. I, I gave you a, an example in that episode of pregnancy for women. So when you are developing a test to figure out if women are pregnant or not, you have the control group of women that are not pregnant and you have the other group of women that are pregnant. So you can easily tell if your test is effective, positive or negative, based on very specific symptoms of pregnant women versus pre uh, women that are not pregnant. In this case, we don't have any control group because we're saying that people with no symptoms also are, are sick or carry the disease carry the pathogen um actually the test can even tell that very well yeah if you did listen to that episode then <laughs> yes you, you understand more well and, and that's really i always kind of like going back to that because that's the shaky ground that we're building this house on you know mm -hmm. it, it is the test because then we're we're saying okay this person has it they're positive this person isn't but you know i think in that episode we established that you know if they're using cycle threshold counts over uh 35 then they can have up to like 80 percent false positives and uh if we don't know what cycle count threshold they used i in suspect the it was 44 cycles because I heard it somewhere, so not don't want to be too speculative in my research. I couldn't really find that data, but for the next episode, I'll definitely try to find. Well, and, and that you you have to think that is probably somewhat accurate because uh, we're seeing most of the tests that are being used right now in hospitals are 35, 40, 45 cycles. So you know, 44 is not out of the question. It's it's in. Uh, the lion's share of the, the tests that are being utilized out in uh, medical facilities and whatnot. Now, I noticed in our notes, I didn't want to pass over it too quick, but we talked, we were, we were going to talk a little bit about um, the well, animal. Well, let me finish my point. Oh, okay. Okay. Because gotcha. I was t talking about, so there is no control here. So how can you measure efficacy with anything? Or how can you even develop a product, right? If you don't have a control group to really test against and also because the symptoms are not very well defined for this this disease yeah they're all over the board yeah they're all over the board so the definition is not clear and the testing is flawed the symptomology is broadening by the day you know some people have a ton of symptoms other people don't have anything um and what else do i want to say about oh the other thing to consider is that um, the survival rate for this disease, right? So if we're going to talk about risks versus benefits when injecting something in our bodies that is, in this case, experimental to make matters a little more tricky, and also um, that is a new technology 
right? New technology, experimental. Um, yeah, we don't know the long-term effects. We need to consider, yeah, we need to consider the the risk versus benefits. So just as a reminder from CDC's on data, which have we have spoken about in other episodes, uh, the survival rate for COVID-19 is between 94.6% for patients 70 plus uh, to 99.997% for patients under 70. Um, so, you know, the odds are pretty good that if you do develop the symptoms that you will survive this. Now, is that correct? I was thinking it was like the, the survival rates were, um, what, what was the 70 plus one again you said there? It was, it was the 94.6%. But I thought they ranged like there was like a yes. 95, a 97. Yeah. Do so, you want me to repeat Well, no, that? no, no. I just wanted to make sure that, that, that I thought you were saying anyone under, I understood what you said is anyone under 70 had a 99.999% or something oh, like that. Oh, it's no. up to 99.997%. Yeah, yeah, Remember, we just want to be accurate. Yes. Right. So pretty accurate. good odds. Um, is all, So it's imperative to inspect the risks versus benefits of an experimental product that really has no control to test against, as I already said it. I said it was the fastest vaccine ever developed. Oh, this vaccine and the skipped animal trials. Yeah, you wanted me to dive in a little bit on that, didn't you? I did want you to dive in on that. Before that, I need to say also, we talked about that in another episode, but this virus was never really purified. So it was never really isolated, and we also talk about that on our last episode, I believe. It was either that one or the one right before Mm -hmm. that, yeah. So in a culture, uh, in a blood culture... You could have several things, several elements in there. And to really be sure that the virus is what is causing the disease, you need to follow a very specific protocol um, for postulates of infectious disease. And we discussed that in our last episode, I think. Yeah, we did. Koch's postulates. So, yeah, check it out. And then Leo's going to talk about the animal trials or, or when we try, right? We tried developing the, the, this type of vaccine before with disastrous consequences. Yeah, there is a great clip that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had put out early on in this. I want to say it was like uh, April or early June or something. And, and uh, it had some clips of... Uh, Dr. Paul Offit, who uh, developed the rotavirus vaccine and obviously very, very pro-vaccine uh, individual, as well as... Doc- what he also voted, yes, to have the vaccine uh, on the market. <laughs> yeah. And, and then Dr. Peter Hotez, as well, who's... Uh, uh, I can't remember what university he's with, but he's, they do a lot of... Uh, I want to say it's... Uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, but I can't remember. But he uh, testified uh, in front of Congress uh, talking about the um, mRNA vaccines. And and, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that it's not a brand new technology to the the developmental market. You know, they actually have tried to create mRNA vaccines before. I want to say it was like 30 plus years ago they tried to develop uh, ones for the childhood respiratory uh, illness, RSV. And uh, we all know that. I think all of our children uh, uh, had that at some point or another, some worse than others. I know we battled it a little bit. And uh, um, 
essentially, he said that they developed uh, a vaccine that uh, was very successful in creating antibodies in the uh, animal trials. So they were very excited. But then when they actually reintroduced those uh, uh, those animals, or I'm sorry, not reintroduced them, but uh, introduced them to the wild virus and uh, uh, not just the uh, uh the portion that their body created through the mRNA strand, uh, they actually had this uh, uh, hyper uh, immuno reaction. yeah reaction, and uh, a lot of those animals had uh, were were severely injured or killed or from that, died, that yeah. yeah from that reaction, and so as a result, those uh, uh, vaccines never made it past the animal trials. So they ended up having to shelve that program. I do believe. Um, I may be wrong. I, w- I was trying to find this earlier today. Uh, you know, you can't ever find it when you need it. But I do believe they 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 did some type of trials on some children somewhere. And I believe there was one or two children that did actually die from it as well. I, c- I can't remember. I may be uh, uh, misstating that, but but I... I yeah, I, for the RSV vaccine, some children actually died. Yeah, it was just a couple, I think. But but uh, um, th- but again, that was part of the reason why they shelved that program. And so now they're bringing that technology back, and it just so happens to be that because of the COVID situation and the uh, challenge that we're in, we are skipping animal trials. Or should I say on paper, we're skipping animal trials? Because... Animals are still getting it. It's just the animals are you and me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are the animals. Well, We're it, the guinea pigs. It, well, and so, so this is now being brought to market, you know, as an experimental um, uh, treatment for COVID. And uh, again, we don't have that safety data. So, and we don't have the animal trial data. So, it, we're giving and this we'll to talk people. About the data. We're giving this to people out in the wild, and uh, we're seeing some of those reactions. And we will talk about that here. Yes. So so far, we only have a couple months of data on this project uh, on this product. A large portion of the data will come from the post-market research data. Do you guys know what that means? Do you know what that means, Leah? Post-market research, it sounds very safe. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it's the data they collect after they start administering the product in the wider population. Which I've uh, lovingly nicknamed the, let's just see what happens, data. <laughs> yes. Okay, Let's just start giving it to yes. people, see what happens. Yes. So the products, the two vaccines that we're talking about in the U.S., Moderna and and Pfizer, are not FDA approved. Okay, so not an FDA approved um, product. And again, I said not FDA approved. (laughs) And it's also (laughs) experimental. Okay, so then um, what do you think we talk about how this new technology works? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So from what we researched and what I understand now, so the Pfizer and the Moderna were developed with the mRNA technology. This is how this technology is supposed to work, okay? It tries to mimic what actually happens in nature based on the understanding of germ theory. We talked about germ versus terrain theory last time. Um, But the virus gets into your body in nature and invades the cell and injects their RNA strands. The RNA in viruses is equivalent to our human DNA. 
which we call infection. And those strands take over our cellular production and proteins and commands the cell and commands the cells to make more viruses. The mRNA vaccine tries to replicate that process. So just like in nature, just like in science fiction movies, you know, <laughs> we try <laughs> we try to replicate nature and things don't end up very well. Um so instead of inject so this vaccine this is what it does instead of injecting the covid viruses into us like most vaccines right they inject fat globules that contain a genetically engineered version of the covid rna strands so our cells start making covid proteins that break open release those proteins so that our immune system then reacts to those artificially generated covid proteins and that's how it's supposed to work. And essentially, if you want to visualize that, I actually saw a thing on uh, um, uh, uh, WebMD where it was it was talking about it. And, uh, you know, when you look at the virus, it's got those, those spikes that come off of it. Those are the spike proteins. And so that's actually what it's generating. It's not generating, you know, the, the primary ball that you see. It's, it's just the spike proteins, which are not the full virus. So then your body, though, recognizes those spike proteins and uh, it mounts a defense against the full virus, even though the full virus is not present, just the spike protein is. Mm-hmm. So it's like our cells turn into these little factories. Right of those spike proteins. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, interesting fact for you guys. Moderna describes the vaccine in the following terms. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. They call it our operating system, recognizing the broad potential of mRNA science. We set out to create an mRNA technology platform that functions very much like an operating system on a computer. It is designed so that it can plug and play interchangeably with different programs. In our case, the program or app is our mRNA drug, which is the Moderna's drug, their drug, and the unique mRNA sequence that codes for a protein. Okay. And, you know, in theory, kind of sounds cool. It sounds cool. Sounds pretty cool. I mean, it's scary at the same time. <laughs> I think I'd rather have a robotic arm. So. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so, and it's very important when you're considering anything they're going to put into your body uh, to know what's in it, right? So let's talk about what's in this vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I know you really wanted me to yes. walk through these. Um, so I here, do. we'll just start here with the Pfizer BioNTech. Said each dose of Pfizer BioNTech COVID 19 vaccine also includes messenger ribonucleic acid, which is the mRNA. It has the lipids. Uh, which are... Maybe you don't want to read all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So lipids. So this fat globules, that's where the mRNA would be encapsulated in. Yeah. And then the other, really the other key ones um, on that one are... Or the other key one, actually. I mean, there's lots of things in there, but the controversial... Which one was that for you? Besides besides the mRNA, the genetically engineered mRNA, is polyethylene glycol. Ah, PEG. Yes. Yeah. It's actually on both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. 
And for those of you who are not familiar with polyethylene glycol, uh, probably the number one product that you may or may not come into contact with every day, or at least you drive to work with it, is antifreeze. Antifreeze in your car's radiator uh, that is primarily made of polyethylene glycol. Yeah, so it's a controversial ingredient, and I will give you some points that we got off the child health defense, children's health defense website, RFK's um, organization. So the mRNA vaccine undergoing COVID-19 trials, which is not undergoing trials anymore. I guess the trials are on people now, (laughs) including the Moderna vaccine, rely on a nanoparticle-based carrier system containing a synthetic chemical called polyethylene glycol, or PEG. PEG is in a lot of stuff, by the way, guys. It's, It's in a lot of different chemicals or chemical compound products, a lot of products. The use of PEG in drugs and vaccines is increasingly controversial due to the well-documented incidence of adverse PEG-related immune reactions, including life-threatening anaphylaxis. Roughly 7 in 10 Americans may already be sensitized to PEG, which may result in reduced efficacy of the vaccine and an increase in adverse side effects. We will also talk about side effects, guys. If a PEG-containing mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 gains FDA approval, which kind of did, kind of (laughs) not. No, no. Emergency use approval. Okay, let's get it right. (laughs) The uptake and exposure to PEG will be unprecedented and potentially disastrous. Moderna documents uh, and publications indicate that document, the company, sorry, Moderna documents and publications indicate that the company is well aware of safety risks associated with PEG and other aspects of its mRNA technology, but it's more concerned with its bottom line. Yeah, I've never heard that with uh, (laughs) pharmaceutical companies. Yes. So other ingredients, Leo, do you want to just give the highlights? So this one being very controversial, as we said. Yeah, I mean, the other ones, God, I didn't realize how hard these were. I know you were having trouble I with know. them. They are so difficult. Um, Dibasic sodium phosphate dehydrate, sodium chloride. I mean, that, come on, sodium chloride, that's pretty easy, right? Yes. Um, oh, let's say how much uh, polyethylene glycol is on the vaccine. It's 0.05 milligrams mm-hmm. per dose. So these ingredients are per dose. We're giving you a spurt each dose that you get. Uh, and then, you know, my favorite is uh, ditetradiclosidamine. <laughs> that I I only get vaccines that have that in it. Okay, so this, this one definitely is in my wheelhouse. Yes, so it has some potassium chloride. It has some monobasic potassium phosphate, sodium chloride. And all those ingredients are... Um, you can be researched online, not on Google, though. Try DuckDuckGo or Yandex. And I I do think it's important if we're being academically honest here. You know, I know a lot of people eat a lot of things that have uh, things. A lot of ingredients. A lot of ingredients that you can't read. Right. (laughs) And and uh, and that's fine. A couple things about that, though. Number one, you're making the choice to eat those things. 
Okay. You mm-hmm. know, you're going there, you have the opportunity to read on there and determine whether you want to purchase that product and eat it. Nobody's forcing you to eat it. Um, it's not going straight to your bloodstream. It's not going straight like, to your bloodstream. You're, you're going to get it digested. Your microbiome is going to break it down and um, get any nutrients that are in there. <laughs> and, and really, what at least my concern is just when you're looking at these things and you're saying, I don't know what they are. I, I don't know long-term effects. We know with this with this particular, first of all, nobody has any frame of references. Are these things used in the other vaccines people are taking and whatnot? I mean, people need to really get out there and do that research and understand, you know, where do they come in contact with these things in other avenues of their life or do they? And if you're- If inter- it was in a, in a cup or in a shot that you could drink it, would, would you? you drink yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> But I, I and I come back to that same thing that uh, you said earlier. You you weigh the fact that you know the survival rate for the disease. And again, another another thing to flag about that is if you uh, contract the the disease, okay, it, you, you have a ninety four point six to ninety nine point nine percent chance of survival, depending on your age and and uh, comorbidities and whatnot. Um, uh, uh, but you. That's if you come in contact with it and you and you retain it and it starts well, to. Well, that's uh, according to germ theory, I guess. Right, right. Again, mm-hmm. I mean, we have to pick some way to yes. talk about this here, but I'm just saying, right. I'm saying that 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 you may not come into contact with it, and uh, so so you have to weigh. Look, go ahead. I know you wanted. No. Yeah, I think we can talk about those things in a little bit because we're going to talk about the side effects and all that. Oh, I got the smackdown. Yes. <laughs> Because we got to talk about Moderna, too. So we talked about the Pfizer-BioNTech, which that's the vaccine that has to be kept super, super cold. Might not be available to third world countries. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Which maybe it's not too bad. Um, and Moderna, so Moderna's ingredients. They also have the mRNA, the... Um, Messenger RNA. Yes. Yeah. And then they've got polyethylene glycol mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Uh, dimisterol. Uh, glycerol, which uh, uh, I'm not sure what what uh, what that is. You know, yeah, cholesterol, which would probably um, our body be, produces cholesterol, I guess. So but yeah, but I mean, I think I think uh, <laughs> if if I remember reading it, it's part of the delivery mechanism. I yes, believe. the fat globules or mm-hmm. the lipids. It's and the then lipids. it's got part uh, of the lipids. Uh, trimethamine, hydrochloride, acetic acid, sodium acetate, and sucrose. Um, oh, did you say polyethylene glycol? Yeah, no, I, I mentioned did? that the okay. first one, yeah. Okay, no, I was not paying attention. Yes, yeah, so those are the ingredients. We will post an article that has all this information on the details. So if you guys want to research it further, you can. And you can, I like to research ingredient by ingredient because I know those ingredients are really not tested synergistically, you know. What do they do if we mix them all together? So it's good to know what each of them, what are the risks for each of them? Okay, so we got to side effects. Everybody's favorite. Yes. So the rates that you will feel very crappy. Can I say crappy? You could say. Everybody said You can say every bad word in the book. <laughs> it's a podcast. After getting these vaccines are actually very, very high. And I will also share 
that link in the episode notes. But mm, let's look at vaccine, uh, comparing the Pfizer and the Moderna side by side. And the, the more, um, would I say, the milder side effects, because there are some side effects that are actually um, a little scary. But let's start with the, the mild ones. So pain, pain and injection site, okay? which could happen, a needle was going into you. Uh, for the Pfizer, it's 84.1%, and for Moderna, is 92%. Fatigue is the second one. For Pfizer, 62.9%, Moderna, 70%. Headaches, 55.1% for Pfizer, 64% for Moderna. Muscle pain, 31.3% for Pfizer, and 61%. 0.5% for Moderna. So Moderna seems to be losing <laughs> over there, although Pfizer looks pretty bad too. Chills, you will get 31.9% for Pfizer, 45.4% for Moderna. Joint pain, 23.6% for Pfizer, 46.4% for Moderna. Fever, 14.2% for Pfizer, 15.5% for Moderna. Injection site swelling will be 10.5% for Pfizer and 14.7% for Moderna. And uh, inject uh, injection site redness, 9.5% for Pfizer, 10% for Moderna. Nausea and vomiting, 1.1% for Pfizer and 23% for Moderna. Wow, you wonder that's a big disparity. 1.1% to 23%. Yeah, so it's interesting because Moderna actually has less ingredients. So I wonder, it must be, let's see, the content maybe. So Moderna has, it doesn't really say how much of the ingredients is in it in comparison with uh, Pfizer. So, and are both of these. Are both of these vaccines um, two dose? Yes, they are both two dose. I think these are after the first dose. And then there's that last one that I'm gonna have you read that that one. It's uh, a big l- word. Lymphadenopathy. Yeah, so it's when your lymph nodes enlarge. Yeah, enlarge and swell. Yes. Can be a little painful from what mm-hmm. I understand. So for, did I say malaise already? 0.5%? I think you did. For Pfizer and uh, not mentioned for Moderna. And then that last one that Leah said, so the enlargement of the lymph nodes, 0.3% for Pfizer and not mentioned for Moderna. Okay, now this, these are the milder uh, side effects. Um, now let's talk about the side effects where um, they have been reg- uh, um, stored or accounted for, or how do you call, say that word, like when they are put in a database. <laughs> I can't think of the word. They have been... You mean like theirs? Yeah, they had been recorded. 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 <laughs> I, I didn't know where you were going with that for a minute. I was like, it can't be recorded. That's too easy. Yes, <laughs> they have been recorded. Um, so these have been recorded uh, for safety in this V-Safe active surveillance for COVID-19 vaccines database. 
And then the CDC actually had been reporting the adverse reactions and the the numbers and their website, but they stopped doing that um, on December 22nd or December 23rd, I guess. We There's data there until December 22nd. So I, I just thought that was a little bit sketchy. What do you think? Kind of sketchy? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Kind of, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So anyways... Um, these um, adverse reactions are reactions that um, make the, the patient unable to perform normal daily activities. They are unable to work and they require care from doctor or healthcare professionals. And the source for this data is from the CDC. And the number is actually 2.3% of patients that received the injection had um, they suffered health impact events a health impact event so anything from I don't know um, I will talk about that I have a list okay <laughs> yes um, so let me see where my list is at that I, I wrote those down. I remember I did. I was going to say, I was looking for where you had yeah, that I and did I don't have it. Did it like disappear? Cause that was, yeah, I can't find it now. Bummer. Because there was a paralysis, mm-hmm. transverse myelitis that were cardiac arrests, cardiac issues. There was an increase in appendicitis. Was Bell's palsy one of those? Bell's palsy also. And that's where... uh, And that's on the clinical trials part. So where is my clinical trials part? I thought I had a part for clinical trials. Maybe you lost it when you reformatted it. Oh, yeah, yeah, because those are very important. But Bell's palsy, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's where uh, one side of your face, essentially the... uh, Muscles um, are paralyzed, and so you... Which is common in, in, in viral infections, I guess, according to germ theory. So it happened in the vaccinated group. I'm trying to think what else was in my notes. Do you remember? I don't. Bummer. Well, maybe it wasn't meant to be. But we will play a, a, a little clip here that's going to talk about the efficacy and maybe... No, that's not going to talk about the clinical trials. Anyways, I will gather that data and we can talk about it on the next episode as a follow-up. But I'm very, that very were, disappointed yeah. in you. No, I know. <laughs> I'm disappointed too. I'm disappointed on my computer because <laughs> I don't know where my data went. Don't know where my data went. Um, so we talked about the efficacy, or did we? We have not talked about the No, efficacy. we haven't talked about efficacy, no. and I'm excited to do that because... Efficacy efficacy was a weird word for me for the longest time. Because, you know, it's one of those words where you feel like you know what it means, but yes. you don't really. If somebody asks you, okay, define it, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's many people listening to this like, I know exactly what efficacy means, you know. So, uh, but I'm just, I'm just telling you my experience for years and years. I always felt like I knew what it meant. It's like, well, you know, efficacy has to do with uh, like... like uh, effectiveness right or something and no it's really it's that like a product does what it is intended to do that's essentially what efficacy Mm -hmm. is and so i want to keep going with this thought but what what do you want to say on that oh i just wanted to say um bring up all these this measures that we have taken 
during the pandemic, like the masks, the social distancing, the lockdowns, right? Uh, the new normal, uh, which has been normalized now as a thing. It's, you know, new normal. Um, we would think, right? And we heard it from Fauci. We heard it from Bill Gates that you could only go back to normal once we had a vaccine. But in the case of the trials, what, what would you think that would mean, right? That people would be now cured from... Yeah, well, I mean, I think... And they wouldn't spread the disease anymore? I, I think if you went up to anyone and you agreed on what uh, efficacy meant, you know, you said it, it, that, that a product does what it's intended to do, then when you're talking about the product of vaccines, because they are called immunizations, you would think that the efficacy is that they provide immunity, Yes. But, oh, I thought of something about the clinical trials real quick. Oh, okay. That no, 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 no. See, you can't bounce around too much. Okay. You, you lose people here. You got to stay with the thought. Sorry, okay? people. But, but uh, you know, the, the name is immunization. So most people would say, okay, the efficacy, if they say something is 95% effect, uh, efficacious, efficacious. Th- efficacious, then, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's, a, it's a good, good chance that you're going to get immunity from uh, taking that vaccine. And I think most people uh, would make that assumption. But that's not the case. The, the, the challenge is it, it comes down to when you are developing a product as a company, you decide, well, what is the purpose of the product? And just because it's called an immunization or a vaccination in this case does not mean that immunity is the intention. So if they say, look, our intention here with this technology is just to limit symptoms or the severity of symptoms, then you can go after that uh, uh, efficacy. And so then if you find yourself that you did, which we're going to talk about kind of the sketchy nature of uh, that particular uh, efficacy in this case with a clip we're going to play in a little bit, uh, you know, you're, you don't have to necessarily, when you go to market the product, you'll find that they're going to say, oh, this product is 90% effective or 95% effective, or I'm sorry, or uh, the efficacy. Uh, uh, it's very, very, uh, uh, it's got very, very good efficacy. But they're not telling you that the efficacy is not immunity. It's not immunity. It's not immunity. It is... Even though it's called immunization. It's, li- it's limiting it's or lessening the severity of the symptoms. And that was their goal, not the immunity. And so a lot of people don't realize, like with the, these two particular vaccinations, Moderna and Pfizer, is that you get this, you can still contract COVID if you are going under the germ theory model. Mm-hmm. You can still contract it. You can still apparently. be... Apparently. You can still be transmissible uh, uh, to other people. And uh, you're still going to have to wear masks. You're still going to have... I mean, if, again, if we believe the efficacy of masks and all that, but, yeah. but I mean, if, if we're saying that, that, that those are efficacious, then we're going to have to uh, continue to do that. We're going to have to continue to social distance. Uh Travel will still probably be restricted. Uh, restricted. Borders might still be closed. Lockdowns might still happen. So, so you think you're going to be? A lot of people I know think they're going to be going back to normal. I work with a lot of those people. I mean, they talk like, "Man, I can't wait for this vaccine. Man, we're going to be out on a golf course." You know, it's like <laughs> this doesn't do anything. Okay. In fact, a lot of people would would say that it kind of creates 
a bit of a sleeper issue because if you believe that this is contagious, then a lot of these people are getting this vaccine thinking that they're developing immunity. And then uh, if this is as as transmissible as they say, these people that get this are going to go out, they're going to go to these events and stuff. And again, I'm not telling you that Fabi and I believe this, what we call BS, but but, (laughs) but I'm saying if you're believing that paradigm, then nothing's going to change. In fact, one of, I think it was the CNN, uh, their medical uh, doctor contributor, I can't think of his name. Um, I think he's uh, uh, one of the Gupta brothers. <laughs> but uh, he said that, you know, don't so fast think you're going to get on the plane. You're still going to really need to stay home. You're still going to need a social distance. You know, th- th- this really doesn't do anything to change this, the paradigm that's happening with transmissibility and, and people potentially going into uh, hospitals and whatnot. So you got to get that out of your mind. So now you're like saying, well, look, do I want to take the risks of an experimental vaccine uh, when it's not even going to give me any real perceived immunity and it's not even going to let me live more of a normal life without a mask or, or uh, with less social distancing? I'm not doing any of that. So I think people really need to weigh that risk reward and say, well, hey, maybe I need to wait this out. Risk benefit risk benefit. Maybe I need to wait this out until there's more data that come in that comes in from from other people who are taking it because at the end of the day you can only make that decision for yourself and for, you know, like your kids and whatnot. But you know, I I, I know for us we're going to be watching that data very closely. Yes. So the efficacy here in this case means uh, lessening of symptoms. I think on the Moderna trials, I was actually reading their uh, pamphlet on the trials. And it was basically saying, okay, like we saw that on the vaccinated group, there were, I think there was one person that had a, um, has severe symptoms. And on the uh, placebo group, there were like 19 or something like that. I think that's what it said. But anyways. Um, Should we play that clip? Is, yes. Is that, no, know? yeah. Let me just say, let me just finish this efficacy per vaccine. So the Pfizer study found this efficacy or lessening of symptoms lasted for, lasted for two months. Um, and well, because that's how long the the trials lasted and Moderna found um, the efficacy or lessening of symptoms for at least 14 days after the second dose. And that was as of December 17th and the CDC notes. um, And that was a clinical trial note I had. That was great. Uh, The Moderna, I think chief of, medical something oh yeah, yeah yeah that's right i remember I that see that's you really it. need to uh <laughs> you need to be a better note taker or something <laughs> this is really it was a formatting issue i was really uh counting on you for this uh, i know because it was a great quote too but it basically he was saying i think it was the chief medical officer of moderna dr zacks and he was talking about uh the vaccine uh criteria wasn't to uh, prevent infection he said that and I think uh, the British Medical Journal also had that on their reporting saying okay don't expect that this is going to stop 
spreading anything. It's basically just to lessen symptoms. So shall we go ahead and play that? Yes. And we, so kind of, can you set this clip up? This is the one, the, the yes. uh, Wise Traditions podcast. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be Dr. Bob Sears. Speaking. He wrote the, the vaccine book. He did write the vaccine book. And he's actually an MD, medical doctor. And he was interviewed on the Wise Traditions podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts because it's all about health and um, what you eat is what you are. And it's about gut health. So uh, really check out that podcast. We're going to put that on the notes of this episode. Okay, so this is about a four-minute clip. Let's uh-huh. go ahead. Wait, he's the co-founder, co-founder of the nonprofit Immunity Education Group. So let's hear what he has to say of about the popular 95% effective number we have been hearing since the announcement that Pfizer had a vaccine. All right, here we go. Well, so this is just one company, Pfizer, but Moderna and AstraZeneca did similar things. So Pfizer basically gave the vaccine to 18,000 volunteers and then gave it again three weeks later. And then they gave a placebo, a true placebo, which is nice, a saline placebo to 18,000 other volunteers. And these volunteers were blinded, so they didn't know what they were getting so they they so their judgment wouldn't be clouded you know if they started to feel sick in the weeks to come so then if any of those test subjects got sick they called their doctor and told their doctor over the phone and then the doctor would decide whether or not to bring them into the office to test them for covid and for the most part they would bring people in to test them but Sometimes the doctor would make kind of just a judgment about whether or not to test them. Mm-hmm. And the doctor was also supposed to be blinded as well. So the doctor wouldn't know whether or not the patient had got the vaccine or the placebo. So what they found is out of the first, um, say, 190 or so patients that came in feeling sick and got tested out of the first 190 or so that tested positive for COVID, Uh 95% of them were in the placebo group and 5% of them were in the vaccinated group. Right. 95% were in the placebo group. Okay. Okay. I'm tracking. Go on. Right. Right. So most of the people that came in got sick with COVID and tested positive didn't get the vaccine, right? They got the placebo. Right. And only a small percentage got the vaccine. So they're saying, hey, you know, based on this kind of scientific approach, it looks like our vaccine is 95% effective because most people that tested positive uh, were the people, you know, that did not get the vaccine. So the problem with this, I I have a couple of problems with this. Um, In order to really prove an efficacy number, you really have to break it down further and know how many people in each group were exposed to COVID, how many really got infected, um, you know, how many people in the vaccinated group were exposed and then did not feel sick, right? And right. Th- th- there's so many data points they don't know. So that's one critical piece of, of information that's missing. Another critical piece is when they look at the numbers of people in both groups that actually did feel symptomatic and had suspected cases of COVID, it was about equal. It was about 
Uh, let's see, it was about 2,000 people in the placebo group, and it was about 1,800 or 1,700 people in the vaccine group that actually felt sick in the months after getting vaccinated. Mm. So it was almost equal as far as people who had suspected cases of COVID. So then when all these people come in and get tested, then you know, you had to have like a positive PCR test result in order to be de- you know determined if it had caught COVID. Well, what is everyone saying about these tests? Everyone is saying these tests are very unreliable. There can be false positives. There can be false negatives. You could have had COVID a couple months ago, maybe even before you got the vaccine, but still show up as a positive result later. Or the, the PCR test could, could miss it completely. These PCR tests are, are themselves not FDA approved. I've even heard that the person who came up with a PCR test who developed it does not recommend them for diagnosing or determining if someone has a particular virus. I know, exactly. And so we are using an, uh, an FDA non-approved test in order to determine whether or not this new vaccine should be approved. Now, people say, well, why are we using the tests? Well, it's because the tests themselves have FDA emergency use authorization. That means the FDA has glanced at it and thinks maybe it's it's okay to use, but they have not verified whether or not it's, it's uh, really reliable. So that's what we're basing this 95% efficacy on. All right, so... What jumps out at you? I mean, to me, it comes back to the test. Mm-hmm. We say, you know, we got this shaky ground we're on because this this test is a piece of crap, you know. And so we're we're building this data. We don't know exposure. You know, the the placebo group uh, could have been in a more densely populated area than mm-hmm. the uh, the people who were in the uh, the vaccine group. Uh, we don't know that. We so they, we, there's no data if there were actually exposed prior um the cycles on the rt-pcr we talked about that too which those can be dialed up or dialed down yeah so do they keep the same uh cycle count throughout um you know there's just so many questions so then they've got this number which sounds fantastic you know, on, on the news, they talk about 90, 95%. But that's all they say. That's all they say. That's they all they say. They talk about the details. And I was even talking to my parents the other day because they really like watching the news. And I said, it's interesting because I haven't watched the news in forever. And they keep repeating the same thing over and over again. So it's really not about what they say. It's about what they are not saying. They're certainly not talking about how these trials were conducted and what were the criteria? What was the criteria? Right? People don't need to know that. Maybe they think people don't need to know that, and maybe a lot of people think they don't need to know that, and they just trust um, the government. But and the experts, right? I trusted the experts when I vaccinated my oldest, and that did not turn out well. <laughs> just saying. So where do you want to go with this now? I think we've 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 laid quite a bit down. We did. Um, I just wanted to um, again come back to let's um, think about risk versus benefit of the vaccine, and um, remember the manufacturers have n- no liability as we talked about. So if something happens, really, you're on we're your own. On our, we are on our own uh, if something happens and. 
uh, there's talk of, about this being mandatory. Maybe the federal government will make it mandatory. Maybe it will be like the mask where uh, if you want to fly somewhere, you got to have it. If you want to, well, for the kids to go to school, they might have to have it. Um, with my employer, they already said it's going to be mandatory. Uh, so we'll but, have to see what we're going to do about that. But, but, but think about just what you were talking about, about liability, uh, where, you know, you can't sue the vaccine manufacturers. And I believe if I understand... Or anybody, even who administers the vaccine. Well, and I, and I don't believe, you know, typically, and a lot of people don't know this either, but, you know, on, on other vaccines that you get, on all other vaccines, you they have liability. They're, they're, the, they don't. They don't have liability. No. But... Um, the manufacturers don't, but then the taxpayers will yeah. pay the bill so, so if there is a problem. You essentially put your claim toward the government, and the government has collected money through the sale of every vaccine. They put it into a fund. They've paid out to date like $4.3 billion or something to families uh, uh, who've had members that have been injured from vaccines. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, and, that and it's very difficult to get your case heard yes. from them. So think about that. They've paid out... Four point three billion dollars since eighty nine, I think, when eighty six when when uh, the vaccine court was put in play. So that's not even in play here. The vaccine court, I think, this is not, from what I understand, you can't sue the vaccine manufacturers and you can't go to the government for restitution on this particular vaccine. Mm-hmm. You can do that on other vaccines, but my yeah. my broader point I wanted to make is, if the disease itself, for most people, you've got somewhere in the high 90s of a, of a survival rate, mm-hmm. you can get insurance coverage for your sickness, you know, and, and any hospital stays and things like yeah. that that you need to get if, obviously, you, you've got an insurance program, which we know there are some uninsured people. But um, you can get coverage. But with the vaccine, you're going there to hopefully prevent you getting the disease, but if you actually have one of these adverse events, you're not going to be able to get coverage mm-hmm. for that for that uh, that injury or get restitution if yes. it keeps you from going to work. So, I mean, think about that. You have a a uh, a chance of major injury, even if we use some of these lower percentage, like the the more systemic. I can't remember how you called those earlier. The um, uh, uh, suffered health impact events. 2.3%. percent I and mean, that's... That's significant. That's... I mean, there's more significant... It's higher than the, the survival rate, right? Right. Because if you're saying 99.997, you have a 0.003 chance that you're going to die. And usually the symptoms, you know, the body processes this and um, you feel... You know, it's like the common cold for most people... Um, and then you're back to normal. And so I think this, this statistic is, is pretty scary. Well, I mean, and then the other piece is, uh, something I wanted to mention when I was talking about, uh, Dr. Peter Hotez and the RSV vaccine development, uh, decades ago that was abandoned because of the animal trial, uh, outcome. Uh, you know, I've read extensively where, uh, uh, people believe that there is a chance that although you may get uh, uh, side effect reduction or less severity through these vaccines now, there is the potentiality, since we aren't able to do long-term trials, that this virus or a derivative of it mutates and then that strain 
uh, attacks the body, and then you can get these hyperimmune responses from the vaccine that you got mm-hmm. for COVID nineteen. Yeah, they're called cytokine storms. Cytokine storms. So, so now you're having this reaction like the animals in the RSV studies did, and it was due to you know a, a later uh, strain of the virus. And what, what's crazy about that is. Uh, because the testing is so bad and everything, will that be marketed to us as a new disease, or will it be a reaction mm-hmm. to the uh, uh, the the actual um, yeah. vaccine that we took for COVID nineteen? That actually happened with the polio vaccine when they started the program. Um, they actually modified the um, criteria for determining, you know, if a person had polio or not. Um, after the fact, because the vaccine was actually causing some, some it, it was causing paralysis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had to modify the, the disease uh, definition <laughs> to kind of cover up. Because honestly speaking, and to get, okay, we're going to get a little conspiratorial here. But I think it's a lot easier for um, the pharmaceutical company to try to cover this up. Because, you know, well, they don't have any liability, but no, they don't want to have the bad reputation that they are developing a bad product. So if, if all this, you know, if all this experiment goes pretty badly, they're going to try to find a way to cover up, like with the nurse from um, uh, CHI Memorial in Tennessee. Uh, what was her name? Tiffany Dover. Uh, which passed out 15 minutes after receiving the the vaccine. She was actually uh, on a press conference, and they attributed that to, do you remember the name? Vasovagal. Yes. You know, it's basically like a blood loss uh, situation for high stress type. Or there's some trick. I actually have that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you pass out, basically, if you see something traumatic, you see a needle, you see a lot of blood, you basically, your blood pressure drops and then you pass out. But um, there's a lot of evidence that actually she passed away. Um, The hospital is not saying anything, but she was one of the first frontline responders, right? She was a manager nurse at this hospital. And and there's actually a lot of, a lot of reports of uh, physicians and nurses that have died after receiving this vaccine, too. Yeah, I mean, there was just a doctor from Miami, uh, just, I think it was yesterday, 56 years old. Uh, I think he was OBGYN and uh, very, very pro-vax. So he went there to get this, and uh, I think within a few days, he he had a major reaction, and uh, they're still looking into that, but uh, um, in very good health. And 56 years old, passed away two, three days after getting the vaccine. So, yeah. um, but, you know, one thing that, that I don't think we have any more content necessarily, but we do have a little clip, which I think is something great to maybe end on. And, and, and what it has to do with is a new treatment. Yeah, I mean, it's, do you want to talk about that? Or I just wanted to say, okay, so we're talking a lot about the vaccine, right, as one of the treatments for COVID-19, which might not be the greatest option as we discussed. Uh, we leave it up to you to take this information, digest, of course, do your own research in weigh the risks and benefits and, and make an informed decision. Uh, but, you know, we also wanted to talk about what are some uh, alternatives to the vaccine. 
Yeah, well, and Fabi and I are always trying to say, hey, when can when do we not have to put medications into our body, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just because they always have side effects. Yeah, they always there's always some downsides. They're definitely they're not natural. Yeah, definitely a lot, a lot of, of times there are benefits. Based. okay okay. so but but uh you know there are these things on the market that are having good luck and uh they're not getting the airtime and Mm -hmm. uh you know i know here in brazil like you were mentioning earlier you hear about the vaccine constantly all day long long. vaccine vaccine it's all about are we going to get it because in a third world country that, you know, which we, I think Brazil is, has actually developed one vaccine. Yeah. I thought yes. they were buying a Chinese one or they something. Are, there's the Chinese one that I think is Coronavax or something like that. We haven't researched into that one, um, but they were even talking about Pfizer, please Pfizer, um, give us some doses. And Pfizer is basically saying, listen, if you want the doses, we can give some to you, not a lot, <laughs> but uh, we want you to say that we have no liability. And so that's where that's where the discussion is. It's not about safety. I mean, they actually keep saying safety, safe and effective, which is crazy to me how they can just over and over and over lie to you like that. I'm not really listening to the media in the U.S. But what I wanted to say is there are some other, I mean, prevention, number one, is the best, the best thing people can do. And when I say prevention, I'm not talking about the measures that have been um, implemented, lockdowns, not lockdowns, not masks, not... Um, hand sanitizers or all these things. I mean, this is, these are more toxins that in, uh, affect our microbiome, the, the hand sanitizers, right? It kills, let's say, kills viruses and it kills bacteria. I mean, we are made of these microorganisms, and we talked about that on our, on our last episode. Um, so we are, when we mess with that diversity, um, that microbiome, our body is naturally going to be more vulnerable. So I would prefer for you to play the terrain theory video versus yeah, the, terrain the theory. other one. But before we get to that, just saying there are some options. So a good diet, lots of sleep. We, we talked about that on our last episode, right? Um, manage your stress the best you can. I mean, it's difficult with the situation at hand, but manage your stress. Uh, there's a uh, vitamin C is amazing. Like it has amazing antiviral properties, vitamin D, sunlight, amazing. A lot of the severe cases in studies show these, these patients with severe cases were uh, deficient in vitamin D and zinc also uh, the NIH actually had an article on their website about zinc and its um, ability to increase inter intracellular zinc concentrations efficiently uh, impair replication in a number of RNA viruses so there are vitamins you can take and I know this has been this information has been censored on YouTube, for example, can't talk about vitamins, but you know, they are all these nutrients are the building blocks of our bodies. Um, so and there's also some safe drugs. And I, we talked about ivermectin, is that what it's called? Uh, in another episode, because we heard from another source that it wasn't 
it wasn't really tested very well for for effectiveness by Dr. Perry Corey. Uh, who is he? Uh, I mean, he, th- he he's going to get an introduction on the clip. I He's got quite a... a uh, do you want to uh, play that clip or do you want to play the terrain theory clip? Yeah, I mean, we could play the terrain theory. I'm not as super excited about it. It's hard to are, understand. Yeah, but here, let me just play that real over quick. Over time. <laughs> well, we're over time and it's a little harder to understand because he talks really fast. But let's go ahead and do that. Okay. Bacteria, viruses, and other microscopic creatures are at the root of disease. There are those who are not so sure. An alternative belief argues that sickness is actually the end result of changes in the internal bodily environment called the terrain. Terrain theory holds that microscopic life forms that are observed in the blood of those who are ill are the result of unhealthy changes in the bodies of those who exhibit signs of disease rather than their cause. According to terrain theory proponents, microbial infections are opportunistic. Their proliferation and subsequent infection requires an opportunity presented by a weak body and it is a strength and resilience of the life force that is the determining factor in whether and how illness shows up and the patient's ability to heal and recover. Terrain theory removes blame from infectious illness from outside forces and places responsibility for its manifestation as well as its elimination squarely on the patient and states that it is not the microbes themselves that produce disease but rather how they interact with cellular chemistry and that if the body is balanced and healthy it will not be susceptible to disease. So if the body's balanced and healthy, it will not be susceptible to disease. Wait. Mind, body, spirit, guys. So good diet, good sleep, manage stress. Um, put yourself in a good environment. Yeah, put yourself in a good environment. I mean, in a good headspace even, you know. Look around, see where you are. And gratitude exercises are also amazing for boosting you know, well-being and immunity. So this, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey... this might be speculation of me, but when I do that, I really feel better. (laughs) Send them a bill, okay. Yeah, Uh, so you're going to want to play that video? Okay. Yeah, well, and the reason why this is important, I think, is that uh, I think people think that the only research and the only uh, real hope is in vaccines. And... Uh, what Dr. Pierre Corey is saying is that, you know, he's been dedicated to looking for existing medications that could be effective in treating uh, or the prophylaxis against uh, the COVID-19 uh, um, uh, sickness. Or viral sickness. Yeah, illness. So illness. Uh, because if we can find something that exists already, it has a long, it would most likely have a long track record of safety and we would know the risks of it because it those risks have been tracked for a long period of time um we know a lot more nuanced data and that was kind of the situation with hydroxychloroquine uh you know early on in the pandemic and uh um, I know that's still being used in a lot of countries to uh, uh, to treat, but here in the United States, it's been kind of blackballed. Um, I think in Brazil, it's it's been blackballed too. In many cases, I think for political reasons. I know a lot yeah. of people would debate that, but a lot of people debate that one. But but uh, ivermectin is a steroid, and it's interesting though because you know you look at hydroxychloroquine, you look at ivermectin, they're both antiparasitics, which. Uh, COVID-19 is not a parasite, but uh, it does seem like it's having success in being treated by antiparasitics. So that's that. there's some interest there. But uh, what this doctor says, in fact, what I'm going to do, 
Um, I'm going to give him just a brief intro, and then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit um, because uh, it's a little lengthy, and I want to get you to the meat here. So let's go ahead and do that. Our next witness is here in person, Dr. Pierre Corey. Dr. Corey is the former associate professor and chief of the critical care service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin, and recently joined the ICU service at Aurora St. Luke Medical Center in Milwaukee. He is board certified in critical medicine, <clears throat> pulmonary diseases, and internal medicine. Dr. Corey has traveled across multiple states in the U.S. to care for COVID-19 patients throughout the pandemic. He is also the president of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. As a politician, I am a physician and a man of science. I have done nothing, nothing but commit myself to scientific truth and the care of patients. And, and to hear that I'm here because of a political angle, I am not a politician, I'm a physician. I want to start out by saying that I'm not speaking as an individual, I'm speaking on behalf of the organization that I'm a part of. We are a group of some of the most highly published physicians in the world. We have near 2,000 peer-reviewed publications among us, led by Dr. Prof uh, Professor Paul Marek, who is our intellectual leader, we came together early on in the pandemic, and all we have sought is to review the world's literature on every facet of this disease, trying to develop effective protocols. You just mentioned that I was here in May, and I touted, I wouldn't say touted, I recommended that it was critical that we use corticosteroids in this disease, when all of the national and international healthcare organizations said we cannot use those. That turned out to be a life-saving recommendation. I am here again today with a new recommendation. In the last nine months, in our review of all of the literature as a group, <clears throat> again, we are some of the most highly published physicians in our specialty and the world. We have done nothing but try to figure out how to identify a repurposed and available drug to treat this illness. We have now come to the conclusion after nine months, and I, I have to point out, I am severely troubled by the fact that the NIH, the FDA, and the CDC, I do not know of any task force that was assigned or compiled to review repurposed drugs in an attempt to treat this disease. Everything has been about novel and or expensive pharmaceutically engineered drugs, things like tocilizumab and rendesivir and monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. We have 100 years of medicine development. We know we are expert in all the medicines we use, and I do not know of a task force that has been focused on repurposed drugs. I will tell you that my group and our organization, I will say that we have filled that void. We, that is all we have done is focus on the things we know and things we do. And I'm here to tell you, Dr. Ryder, he just presented. It was one, he has one study of the many that I want to talk about. And I want to talk about that we have a solution to this crisis. There is a drug that is proving to be of miraculous impact. And when I say miracle, I do not use that term lightly. And I don't want to be sensationalized when I say that. That is a scientific recommendation based on mountains of data that has emerged in the last three months. When I am told, and I just had to hear this in the opening sentence, that we are touting things that are not FDA or NIH recommended, let me be clear. The NIH, their recommendation on Evermectin, which is to not use it outside of controlled trials, is from August 27th. We are now in December. This is three to four months later. 
mountains of data have emerged from all from many centers and countries around the world showing the miraculous effectiveness of ivermectin it basically obliterates transmission of this virus if you take it you will not get sick i want to briefly summarize the data my manuscript, again, published by some of the, 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 the most, con we have contributed more to the medical knowledge of our specialty in our careers than, than anyone else can claim as a group. And our manuscript, which was posted on Medicine Preprint Server, details all of this evidence. I want to briefly summarize it. Number one, we have evidence that ivermectin is effective not only in prophylaxis, in the prevention. If you take it, you will not get sick. We just came across a trial last night from Argentina by the lead investigator of Ivan Benton in Argentina, Dr. Hector Carvalho. They prophylaxed 800 healthcare workers. Not one got sick. In the 400 that they didn't prophylax with ivermectin, 58% got sick. 237 of those 400 got sick. If you take it, you will not get sick. It has immense and potent antiviral activity. We know that from the first study in Monash, it has made the bench to the bedside. Prophylaxis, we now have four large randomized controlled trials totaling over 1,500 patients, each trial showing that as a prophylaxis agent, it is immensely effective. You will not get sick. You will be protected from getting ill if you take it. <clears throat> In early outpatient treatment, we have three randomized controlled trials and multiple observation as well as case series showing that if you take ivermectin, the need for hospitalization and death will decrease. The most profound evidence we have is in the hospitalized patients. We have four randomized controlled trials there, multiple observation trials, all showing the same thing. You will not die, or you will die at much, much, much lower rates. Statistically significant, large magnitude results if you take ivermectin. It is proving to be a wonder drug. It has already won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2015 for its impacts on global health in the eradication of parasitic diseases. It is proving to be an immensely powerful antiviral and anti-inflammatory agent. It is critical for its use in this disease. We, again, stand by our manuscript. It is a scientific manuscript. It's been submitted for peer review. But please recognize, peer review takes time. It takes months. We do not have months. We have 100,000... All right, I'm going to go ahead and stop that there. But um... There's something we forgot. Well, but can we wrap up, though, this yes, and then, okay. we can. Because <laughs> we have gone long. We're in hour 21. Oh, my goodness. This okay. has been the, our longest. Yeah, our longest, yeah, just by a hair. But um, I, I thought that was really intriguing because are you hearing about ivermectin? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm pretty connected. You know, I, I, I we yeah, don't. Yeah, what I heard about it, actually, we talked about in a couple, um, in one of our episodes was that in studies had not been shown i think it was in animal trials it was fine but in human trials it hadn't shown any efficacy so it's interesting to hear from a doctor that's actually saying hey you know we have tons of data on this and it is effective well and what he goes on to say is that you know he's just um he's really just worn out from all the death in the hospitals that he knows that they could, could eliminate if they would let them treat them with ivermectin. And so you, you just have to ask yourself the question, uh, if, if this is a commonly used drug, 
yeah, that has a, 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 a good safety record, why aren't they letting that out there? You know, it, it, because, you know, we talked about being conspiratorial earlier. I mean, there, there's no argument between either of us that the pharmaceutical companies, which have all these, these uh, vaccine manufacturers, with the exception of Moderna, because it's brand new, uh, this is their first product, uh, but uh, Pfizer, the rest of them, they've all been guilty of fraud and whatnot, and they have uh, paid hundreds of millions of dollars, and these are on their um, uh, prescription drugs. Um, but we're supposed to believe that with vaccines, they don't do any of that behavior. You know, they, 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 yes. don't, they don't manipulate data, they don't hide data, they don't uh, sell bad products in parts of the world that, that don't have uh, the regulations of the first world. Yes, we're talking about conspiracies, and you sent this to me the other day. It was kind of a meme, somebody holding a, a cardboard with this uh, quote written on it. It says, the real conspiracy theorists believe that the government cares about them, the media will never mislead or lie to them, and the pharmaceutical industry that makes billions off sickness wants to cure them. Yeah, yeah. And so we just want people to have the data. We know that uh, it's more what they're not talking about that you should there be. There are options. In this case, there is a drug. <laughs> I'm not sure if it is an expensive drug or not. Like yeah, I don't know about in that. In the case of hydroxychloroquine, we know it's a very, a very inexpensive drug. Yeah, because that's been around for, yeah. what is it, 60s, almost 70 years or something like that? Yes. But one thing we forgot was to say, talk uh, that terrain video, who actually was talking on that video? Uh, you know, I don't know on that the specifically. Source, but I just thought it was a great terrain theory summary. You know, is it is it the pathogen? We call it pathogen or germ theory calls it pathogen or is it the terrain? Because how come some people get sick and other people don't get sick? It's just interesting to um, to dig into that a little more. And we have a whole episode on that. Yeah, so uh, Ryan Alexander, he is, uh, he looks like he's just a, a content aggregator, so I'm not sure who that actually is in the video. But I mean, we were, we were playing that more because it was a nice synopsis or summary mm -hmm. of terrain theory that yes. uh, we There's hadn't heard. There's plenty of doctors that speak of that. Yeah, D Dr. Zach, Zach Bush, Bush is one of the main ones that yes. uh, triple Dr. board certified. Cowan Dr. Cowan talks yeah. about the terrain. He has a great book. Well, I think that. I think we have. Uh, we need to wrap up. We do need to wrap up. We're going on an hour and a half, but um, you know what? It, it's a big subject. It is. It's a big subject. We wanted to be accurate. I know that uh, you know our uh, our research team really let us down. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We did pretty good. And and again, our goal here is just to light some kindling. Okay. Yes. You you need to do your own research. You've got to get out there. The data is out there. Um, and you know, when you're making this decision for yourself and for your family members, like your children, you know, you just have to know the risk profile uh, mm -hmm. or the lack of known risk profile of a product that you're going to inject in your body because yes. it could it could mean 
uh, a big life shift if you have an adverse uh, impact to your to your health, and and we don't want that for you. Um, it's better that you make that decision and say, hey, look, um, I'm willing to take that risk, or I'm willing to take the risk of the disease. You know, yes. either way, um, that's your decision. So let's. Uh, Head on out of here. Again, this is Leo and Fabiola at the Collective Resistance Podcast. We will see you next time. Yes, stay healthy, stay safe, stay curious.